What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris. And today, I had the pleasure of speaking with Nick Majuli. All right. So those of you who don't know him, he is uh, someone who has a very successful blog about like personal finance. And this is something that I'm very passionate about. Um, but yeah, his book, his brand new book is called Just Keep Buying. And I'm so glad that I just randomly stumbled across it. So yeah, in this conversation, we talk about a wide range of subjects, but I guess I'll preface it with, with this. I have a few episodes with authors uh, like Nick uh, coming up. And one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this topic is because for, you know, a number of years of my life, I was a drug addict and I completely destroyed my finances. I didn't learn anything about saving, investing, credit, credit scores. I didn't know anything about anything. And it wasn't until last year that I finally educated myself. And something that I realized is that there are so many people who just don't know these things. They don't know about saving. They don't know about investing. They don't know about, you know, credit and all these other things. And it's so, so, so important. Like while I push for a lot of different policy changes and I talk about all these different social issues, there are certain things that we could do now in the system that we're in to help balance things a little bit. But a lot of us just don't know, or there are myths and misconceptions and all that. But speaking of myths and misconceptions, that is one of the main reasons I loved Nick's book, because like I said, I had to self-educate. I've read dozens and dozens and dozens of books on this topic, and Nick's is one of the best. He challenges a lot of conventional wisdom, like, for example, uh, should you max out your 401k every single year? That's something we discussed in this episode. Uh, is it ever okay in your financial situation to have credit card debt, or should you pay it off right away, right? There are all these things that we hear, like, save your money get a savings account and make sure that there was money in it. Is that the best idea? All of these things that we hear, right? Nick looks at them and says, okay, but is this really the best method or is this just something that we keep telling people to do? So again, that is why I loved his book so much. I'm so glad he took some time to come on. He's a super, super busy guy. And this is definitely one of my favorite books. So if you are looking to learn about how to manage your money a little bit better, go out and get his book, head down to the description. Uh, I have linked his social media, his blog, but most importantly, I have listed uh, his brand new book, Just Keep Buying. I binged it in like two days. It's phenomenal. That's linked down below. Check it out. And you know, the last thing I'll say on that is this is something that I'm teaching to my son, because like I said, I didn't learn about this until my 30s. So I'm trying to change these things. And the way that I educate him is by learning from people smarter than me, like Nick, <laughs> right? Anyways, before we get started, if you're new to the podcast, this is your first time, make sure you subscribe, make sure you're following. I personally read hundreds of nonfiction books every single year. I love bringing authors on here to chat about them on a wide range of different topics. So make sure that you're following the podcast. Also, make sure you're following me on social media at The Rewired Soul over on Instagram and Twitter. And for those of you who don't know, I've been doing a lot of stuff over on TikTok lately. If you're into that, I do a lot of very quick book reviews, book lists, some other little content over there. So follow me at The Rewired Soul over on TikTok. Uh, and then lastly, 
Some of you have the pleasure of listening to this episode a day early. Uh, if you would like to get that little perk as well, head on over to the rewiredsoul.substack.com. It's linked down below. Uh, if you become a paid subscriber for five bucks a month or $50 for the year, you get all of the episodes a day early pretty sweet deal. All right. But anyways, without further ado, here's my conversation with Nick Majuli about his brand new book, Just Keep Buying. All right. Hello, Nick. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me on, Chris. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Loved your new book. Uh, Just keep buying. And before we dive into the book, for those in my audience who have no clue who you are, can you give us a little bit of your background, what you do and all that stuff? Yeah. So my name is Nick Julie. I work at Ritholtz Wealth Management. It's a wealth management firm here in New York City. I'm the chief operating officer, so I do a lot of operations stuff for them. But in addition to that, I also have a blog called Of Dollars and Data, and you can find that at ofdollarsanddata.com. And I write one blog post a week about personal finance investing, and I've been doing that for 290 weeks now. I think this week, 290 this week. So yeah, so that's what I do. Just write on the internet about investing and uh, work at a wealth management firm. So yeah, that that's awesome. I still need to check out the blog because as I was reading your book, I'm like, sounds like you provide some pretty valuable information. And so with you, with you working in like kind of like wealth management and all that stuff, have you brought in a lot of people just having questions about how to get started with investing, saving and all that kind of stuff? I mean, yeah, those those people definitely come in and those I mean, usually people who are kind of in that boat are going to probably we have different products, different service offerings. Um, mm. So we have something called Liftoff, which is for people kind of just starting out and things like that. Usually people who have have amassed more wealth have, have some understanding of investing. Most of our clients are actually pretty sophisticated and know a lot of this stuff. Mm. Um, so we really just help with the planning piece and kind of the peace of mind. That's kind of our, our main main takeaway here. Um, yeah, so we're trying to get people started investing, thinking about that stuff. And I think a lot of people do it themselves. There's nothing wrong with doing it yourself. It's just a question of, you know, are you going to be able to like, you know, stay disciplined, you know, when markets, you know, crash, things like 2020, yeah. et cetera, right? It's like the the big question that a lot of people have. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, uh, like that's, that's something, you know, I've been struggling with because I am 36 years old, right? I was a drug addict until I was 27, had no clue mm -hmm. about money. And I'm finally getting my stuff in order. And I had this mm -hmm. really late start, right? And as mm -hmm. I kind of mentioned before we hopped on, I've noticed that there are a lot of people who don't even touch investing. If they're lucky, maybe they got a little like in an emergency savings and all that kind of stuff. But anyways, it, it kind of blows my mind because a lot of people I see who seemingly have it like together, they don't invest at all. So I'm curious, like from your, you know, experience or conversations, like, are there like common reasons or even excuses or misconceptions that make people not want to dabble in investing from what you've seen? Yeah. So I think there's a, there's like this prevailing belief that like the stock market's a scam or something like that. And I, I don't know why I see that once in a while. And it's a very, it's not something I notice much in like the, you know, the most of my audience believes that obviously or else wouldn't be reading mm -hmm. me, I hope. Um, 
those people that believe the stock market scam because prices do move around. It's volatile at times, you know, and that's just a part of the game. That's kind of how it is. And I do talk about this a little bit of volatility and why you don't need to fear it. But mm-hmm. that's a big thing I see. And then with other people, um, they just don't want to see their their val- their principal balance ever go down. And so like they risk if they're like, oh, I if I earned one hundred thousand dollars and I've saved that up, I don't want to lose any of it. Right. And so. Mm-hmm. By not investing, your your dollar value will never go down by sitting in cash. But what you don't realize is behind the scenes, you're actually losing money. And what is that? That's from inflation, right? Prices go mm-hmm. up, but you're 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 always gonna have the hundred thousand in the bank, but the prices keep going up. And so that hundred thousand every year, you're paying this invisible tax of inflation. And so one of the best reasons to invest, and probably especially now, given inflation's been eight point five percent over the last year in the most recent print. Um best reason to invest is so you don't pay that tax. And every year you're, mm-hmm. you're just holding cash, you're paying that tax without realizing your prices are going up and up and up and your your dollar is not going up, right? It's actually going down in value relative to other things. So when you own some stocks or you own some real estate, or you own some farmland or different types of income producing assets, you can kind of hedge that a little bit, mm-hmm. you know? And so generally, you know, um, after inflation, a lot of these, you know, income producing assets, which are, can be risky, obviously, their prices can go down, but over the long term, they generally go up and they beat inflation. So they actually go up more than the rise in price, which is kind of, you know, a miracle in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Something, uh, you know, I, I noticed like one of the reasons I got into investing and started reading just a ton of books, trying to educate myself was I came into, uh, you know, a decent amount of money. And I'm like, oh, I'll just toss this in a savings account. But then I started looking at it, especially when I just learned about, you know, just investing in like an S&P 500 index fund. I'm like, wait a second, like the returns from just letting my money sit in a savings account versus like putting it in something over the long term, you know, has a much higher growth rate. I was like, mm-hmm. why aren't more people doing this? But uh, we'll dive a little bit more into that in a minute, like for savings versus investing. But real quick, you mentioned you know, people think like investing is like a scam, right? And right when I was getting into investing, it was early last year. And that's when the whole uh, GameStop, Wall Street bets, Robin Hood thing came out, right? And, you know, uh, I would almost argue it's it's made people even more skeptical. Um, we were watching that new docuseries. I'm not sure if you saw it on HBO, but uh, it's about the Wall Street bets uh situation and they were talking about you know short selling and naked short sales all these other things but i see people getting more and more skeptical about this stuff so do you do you have any advice for the average person right because you know there's been times when i'm like well i'm not this you know multi-billion dollar company managing money i'd have no influence on like my few shares you know what i mean so Mm A lot of people see it as being rigged against them. Like, is that a bad mindset to be in? Should people not worry about it? Like, what should the average person be taking into consideration when they can see all this stuff that's happening? Well, yeah, I understand the the that feeling after the whole GameStop thing with like their shorts and they had the, you know, they did they stopped allowing allowing trade yeah. to go through because of the trade settlement. It's a lot more complex than it's it's just it's really annoying how all that stuff works. But the main thing to take away is like there are things you can own that actually are worth your time and mm-hmm. are going to help you build wealth. And the game is not rigged against you. The game is actually rigged in your favor, in my opinion. And that's like owning a broad, diversified index fund. So, for example, the S&P 500, owning an S&P 500 index fund, you basically own all 500 companies at once, right? So they're not going to stop trading of the S&P 500. That's like every, you know, they don't stop trading yeah. the entire market. There have to be much bigger things going on in the world, like maybe a nuclear war or something to stop stock market trading, right? And in which case, no one's going to care what's going on with their portfolio. Like, <laughs> yeah. So you see what I'm saying? So, you know, the 
the transaction costs have come down over time to the point where they're basically free now. We used to have to pay for trades. It was like $8 mm. trades or $5 trades. Now trades are free at basically every big brokerage firm. So when you think of it that way, like it's basically free to get in and out. And before you used to pay percentages that just get into a mutual fund, you used to have to pay like a 7% load fee, which means you put $100 in, $7 just went to the, in fees just out oh, the wow. gate. And now that's basically zero. So if you think about it, like it's gotten cheaper and cheaper to have a large diversified basket of stocks, right? And so it's like, there are like, yes, if you're buying one individual stock, anything can happen and you can feel like the thing's rigged and I get that feeling. Mm-hmm. But if you're owning a a bunch of stocks at once it's a very different feeling and you know that generally that basket's going to build wealth over time so that's what i would tell people is like yes you're seeing some of this stuff happening and you're seeing all these crazy things that make it seem like a scam but remember there's like just like in any field right just like with diet advice there's people out there that you know like this is probably scam diet advice and no this is probably legit it's the same thing with the investment field or any field out there and so you have to talk to people who are like well what are these people what's their end game right like yes i'm trying to sell books of course right but my book isn't like some system or anything it's like any anyone can go (laughs) out there find it you can do it yourself it's very cheap you know so those are my incentives obviously and i'm not like here to like promote the wealth management firm i'm not here to do any of that stuff right i'm here to really just help people like think about their money and kind of just question a lot of that stuff you know and if you know you find we happen to be a good fit or something or you need more help or peace of mind yeah go ahead talk to us but i'm not here to like promote that that's not really the point at all so um it's really just about like thinking about like your life your financial life and how you can build wealth over time that's what i really want to help people because there's like a lot of data out there says hey you can build wealth if you just you saving money is good so if you can save money that's already that's the hardest part right if you have the ability to save money you're just not investing it you've already done the hard you've done the heavy lifting the easy part is like it's just that one next little step to get it invested right the hard part is saving money if you have trouble saving money then yeah it's going to be tough for you to invest because if you don't have any sort of contributions to to invest I agree. It's going to be very difficult for you. The hard part is saving money. So if you have, you know, your, if your audience is like, you know, already saving a bunch of money, but they just don't know what to do with it, that the hard part's done. In my opinion, like the hard part is done. The easy part is getting invested. The hard part is saving money. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, since I was, I was only a month or two into just starting to invest when all that went down and, and yeah, something I realized, like, you know, just resenting, you know, just different aspects of the system or things that might happen. Like, if I don't, you know, uh, take advantage of investing, it's only hurting me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like in my, mm-hmm. uh, you know, my long-term, you know, success and all that kind of stuff. And that's kind of the way I shifted my, my thinking. Like I'm not hurting anybody else by just holding on to my money and having inflation eat away from, you know, mm-hmm. the money I do have. Um, but let's, let's break down the, the title of the book, because that's kind of what caught my eye. I was like, okay, it's called just keep buying. Right. So mm-hmm. for for anybody who's who's never invested in their life, what is kind of this philosophy that you have of just keep buying? Is it no matter what? Are there caveats? How do we do that? Yeah. So just keep buying. I mean, I, I define this in the book as my investment philosophy is the continual purchase of a diverse set of income producing assets. Right. And the whole idea is that you're going to keep buying income producing assets over time. Of course, what mix? I don't know. I wish I could mm-hmm. say, oh, you're going to buy. 40% US bonds, 60% US stocks, and you'll be fine. But the problem, the fact is the information is going to change over time. So figuring out which exact basket to buy is going to change. 60-40 worked very well historically. Right now, it's not doing as well because bond yields, bonds aren't paying that much. Back in the day, you could get bonds paying you 5% a year for 10 years. A 10-year bond would pay you that, right? That's not true today. You're not, you're getting half of that, you know, if, and, and at times recently, it's been much less than that. So because of that, because, you know, the, the information is always changing the exact 
form the exact recipe is going to change, but the idea is always the same, right? The mm. idea is to buy a diverse set of, of income producing assets and figuring out what mix is right for you. I just don't know. And I wish I could say, it's just the issue is there's a lot of ways to get rich. Like you're going to know people that got rich in real estate. You're going to know people that mm -hmm. got rich in stocks, you know, people that got rich in all sorts of stuff, right? There's only a few ways to go broke generally. And it's usually high risk or high spending, right? You're too concentrated in that asset collapses, your leverage and the asset collapses, or you just spend all your money and you overspend and you go into debt and then you can't get out of it basically. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of ways to get rich. And because of that, I can't give you the answer. I know how unsatisfying that is because there are people that say, here's the way to get rich. Everyone else is wrong. Like, no, like you're not right. There's a lot, like I know, because I know rich people that got rich in many different ways. And mm. so I think keeping that in mind is like, there's a lot of ways to do it. So just keep buying. Does that mean that you're always going to only buy U.S. stocks and buy U.S. stocks forever. Like you could do that, but yes, there are going to be times when U.S. stocks are like, there are going to be times when they're like, they seem like overvalued and you're like, maybe I'm going to keep buying or maybe I'll just, I'm in my 401k, I'll keep buying, but maybe outside my 401k, I'm going to maybe Ooh. own a little bit more international. So you can make little tweaks like that. And so a lot of this stuff is about, you know, you do want to keep buying over time and generally I ignore valuation, but at some points there are times when like, if you look at the data, like we're at the 99th percentile of something, you're like, Maybe this isn't this time's different. Maybe this is like a bubble and you don't know. Yeah. So there are ways you can kind of make little tweaks. And that's I'm always a fan of that. And I don't discuss that too much in the book, but that's kind of the idea if you want to make little tweaks. But you I do want you to keep buying some sort of diverse income producing mm -hmm. asset. That's the key over time. So it's tough because you can never really know the future. But I mean, I think that's the main takeaway for people is like, just keep buying assets that are going to pay you money. That's it. Yeah. That's what matters most and figuring out which assets I don't know. And so, yes, you're going to buy overvalued assets at some point. It's going to suck. And But if you keep buying over time and buy different ones, you should do okay. Right. And that's the key, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, here's, here's my struggle, Nick. So like, I'm, I'm, I, I don't know. I like to think I'm fortunate that I was a huge psychology nerd before I started investing. So I got really mm -hmm. into like behavioral finance. I actually just had a conversation with uh, Daniel Crosby the other day and stuff like mm -hmm. that. Right. But anyways, the thing that's always sticking in my head is the sunk cost fallacy. Right. Right. I throw a bunch of money in, start investing, and then I just keep buying. And this thing just keeps going down. Mm -hmm. Right. At, at what point, or do you have any tips, any signs, any indicators like, hey, maybe I need to move away from this. Like, like with the S&P 500, right, owning all 500 of the biggest companies, that's not a big deal to me. Historically, it goes up, right? Mm -hmm. And you talk about this in your book about like playing around with some individual stocks. But I do think, you know, from at least what I've seen from the average people who do start getting invested, they start trying to find like the Teslas or the Apples or the cryptos, which we could talk about later, right? Those mm -hmm. one things. So what, is, what do you advise people to do when, when they're dumping money into something that's going down? Because I try to look and say, okay, is the whole market down or is it just this one stock? And I don't even know if that's the best method of looking at it you know yeah so basically what you're saying is like okay is it just you know what what we call beta which is the whole market what the market does right the market goes up beta is positive mm -hmm. or bar goes down beta is negative right so it's the question is what's going on with beta and is this stock you know positively so if it's moving with the market or against the market or you know if the market's up one percent and it's down three percent that's that's bad that's negative beta right so the question mm -hmm. you have to think about is like um what's going on with this stock relative to the market. And I, this is why I generally don't recommend individual stocks because yes, the market as a whole tends to go up over time, but that's also because the market's always changing. There is this kind of renewal. Like if, if the market was always the same, we'd only like from since like the early 1900s, we'd only have railroads and all those stocks, like some of those are still around, but a lot of them went bankrupt and stuff. So 
the S&P 500 is always changing. So you're kind of getting this kind of renewal of the market over time. And so when you're buying that index, seeing it go up to the right, you're not really owning the same companies. You're going to own losers. You're going to own ones that do badly. And that's mm. okay because you're going to own the winners too, right? And the winners minus the losers, you generally win out. That's the whole point. So trying to pick stocks is really tough and to be like, oh, well, I know it's got to recover because look, it was at this price. That's not true at all. Like most companies die over the long, the long run. I think my favorite fact is, um, in 2020, like there was not a single stock in the Dow Jones that was in there 100 years ago, 100 years prior from 1920. Oh, wow. The last one was General Electric and they fell out. I can't remember when, but I think it was like maybe 2018, 2019 or something. General Electric was removed from the index. But it goes to show that on, on a long enough time scale, basically every company will collapse. Even Apple, Google, Amazon, at one point, you know, with a couple, maybe 50 years, 100 years, 200 years from now, those companies will not exist anymore. Um, if Who knows what's going to do them in? I don't know. It could be a us thing it could be something to do with those companies i have no clue but these things don't generally last forever and so realizing that 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 these companies don't last forever this is why you should index and own a diverse basket of stocks right and i think indexing is just easier just you know it's like mm -hmm. were you born to be a stock picker maybe but probably not so just buy a low-cost index you know make it easy on yourself you can search index funds s&p 500 index funds you'll find a list they're very cheap it's very easy mm -hmm. to find them do that and do something better with your time. You're going to you're going to do more for your finances by working on a side hustle or doing something else, making extra money, getting a side job than you are trying to beat the market and doing all that stuff. I mean, so I wouldn't focus too much on what exactly you're picking and just focus more on like pick something that makes sense and then just kind of move on. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and I remember when I first started when I first got started, I started watching all these like YouTubers and reading like articles or blogs and stuff and and it there was a lot of people like, oh, this is the stock that's going to like go up all these other things. Like a story I often tell people is like the, the Coinbase IPO, right? They were projected to just explode. And mm -hmm. I bought like at the bottom of the day that their IPO went out and it's only gone down since. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's been it's been, you know, uh, a learning experience. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so as money comes in, I've been, you know, focusing on index funds and all that, but I wanted to kind of uh, shift gears because one of the things I loved about your book, uh, more than any other book I've, I've read is that you, you kind of debunk some like conventional wisdom on a few different topics. So anybody listening who isn't familiar with investing, we all know, or at least heard of 401ks, right? And, you know, this is something that I'm thinking about because, you know, I was freelancing for a while, just had my different revenue streams and all that, but I'm working for a company that offering me 401k. And in your book, you're like, hey, maybe it's not a great idea to fully max out your 401k, right? Mm -hmm. And that's like all I hear, that's all I've read. So can you kind of break that down why it might not be the best idea for everybody or every situation, just so people can start rethinking it a little bit and hopefully buy your book and check out the rest of your, <laughs> your Yeah, advice? of course, of course. So yeah, for with the 401k stuff, like I, I ran some analyses that showed that, you know, because what, what are you really not paying? Like, what are the taxes you're avoiding by being a 401k, right? So some would say, okay, well, with a pre, with a traditional 401k, you're not paying your income tax, but you're going to pay that later. So mm -hmm. whether you do Roth or traditional, doesn't matter. You're going to pay your income tax at some point. Obviously, it might be lower in retirement, so there's debates to be made. But let's just assume for now to make this easier that your income taxes are consistent. Your, the tax rate you're going to pay is consistent over time. So there's no difference if you choose Roth or traditional. So let's just assume that it makes this a little bit easier. So what are you actually avoiding? You're avoiding the capital gains tax, which is all the gains. So if you put $100 in and it goes to 200 or 300 by the time you're in retirement, Ooh. that $200 gain, you're not going to have to pay any tax on that if through a Roth or, you know, but in a, but if you took that money, that 300, that $100, and you got it outside of the system and you put it in a brokerage account, 
and you have that $200 gain, let's say it's long-term, you got to pay that. That's You're going to pay 15% of that, right? So on 200 bucks, that's what, $30 or something. So it's not, you know, mm-hmm. it's not a ton of money, but still you have to pay that. That's tax you have to pay. So you're, you're yeah. getting that little extra money. But let's say you did that over time. You just, every year you put them, you looked at someone who put it in a brokerage account for someone who put it in a Roth 401k. You do that for 30 years. How how much of an extra return do you get by not paying that tax? And it's about 0.7% a year. So it's it's not it's not super large, but it's not super small. It's kind of, it's a little sizable, but that assumes the same fees. And so what I'm really telling people is like, look at the fees in your 401k. If the fees in your 401k, like let's say you're paying 1% on your funds mm-hmm. and you're getting 0.7%, that means by putting money in your 401k above the match, above anything your employer is going to match, any dollar above that, that money is actually making you less than if you just kept it outside the system and put it in a brokerage account and invested it there where you could got a cheaper fees basically. So that was the thing. I'm just trying to, to you know bring light to these issues because I think a lot of people, you're right, all the advice out there says max your 401k, max your 401k, max your 401k, but it doesn't, a lot of people do not have good 401k plans. They're not looking at their fees. They're not considering, well, mm-hmm. what if I need the flexibility? Like, you know, I understand 401ks for your retirement. I understand that. But at the same time, you might need some of that money earlier. So maybe just going to the match is decent enough to get you on the right track. And then having some money outside the system to maybe buy a house or pay for a wedding or whatever. That's one of the regrets I had because I maxed for a couple of years. And then I was like, wait, why did I do this? Like, I don't even know if the, I did have decent, like my fees weren't too high. So it wasn't that, but like, I'm not sure if the extra 0.7% a year, um, that's assuming similar fees in a brokerage and your 401k, which is generally not true. There's usually some other additional fees on top of your fund fees. I don't know if it was worth it, right? So that's the kind of thing I try to get people to think about. Just like, you know, how much are you paying in fees? Figure it out. Go look to ask people, ask people your company, mm-hmm. ask your HR person. Like, can you dig into this and figure out what I'm actually paying in fees? Not just like the funds, but the actual 401k plan itself has administrative fees, right? Get all those fees and then say like, if it's above 0.7 or if it's even close, if it's like 0.5 or something, it's like you're getting almost no benefit going above the match, right? And then it's yeah. like, okay, why should I do that? I should just put in a brokerage account and just hold for the long term. And that's going to that's gonna be a better bet. Um, yeah. So yeah, that's that's my takeaway there. And it's just, I just want to start the conversation around it. Of course, there's going to be some people where, it's, where they should max. If you know you're in California right now or New York, a high-tax state, and you know you're going to live mm. in a low-tax state later, max. Because you're going to have, by moving to the low-tax state, you're not going to pay the state tax. Like you're going to have to pay, you know, while you're working. So there are exceptions to this rule, Ooh. but for the most part, I think a lot of people just assume it's a given and I don't think it is. And I think we really need to have a conversation about it. It's a lot more nuanced than these personal yeah. finance experts make. But but here's the thing, they haven't run the numbers. Like I've actually run the numbers that, hey, like this is looking a little like, you know, I'm not saying it's perfect. And so I'm just trying, trying to figure this out. And so I think a lot of people just said it because it makes sense and not because there's any yeah. data or evidence backing in. So I'm trying to bring evidence to these conversations. Yeah, yeah. And you know, like, I, I, something I've noticed, like the second day, like I learned about 401k, like I was 18, 19 years old at my first full-time job. And I remember us all sitting in this meeting and just like trying to stay awake, right? Like, it's like, what are you talking about? And then, especially when you're young, retirement's the last thing on your mind, you know, all these other things. So you, you kind of mentioned like, you know, talking with HR and things like that about like, hey, what are the fees and everything? Is there like, because a lot of people don't want to just dig through all this paperwork. It's the same reason they'll have somebody else manage their money. They don't want to go through all that hassle. Are there like just some like, like just certain like points in their, you know, information that they can look for like fees and then maybe compare it uh, because, you know, uh, there's also, you can invest in your own personal Roth IRA, like outside of a 401k, it's not giving mm-hmm. any money matched, but mm-hmm. are there some things that people can look at that's not going to need them to be a whole like financial a- a- uh, analyst to see if, Hey, is this the right path for me? 
Yeah. So depending on income thresholds, they may be able to, to use an IRA and do that as well. And that's going to give you some, but that, once again, that's going to give you roughly the same 0.7% tax savings. Now, mm. without the fees, let's say the fees are the same in a, in a, in a Roth IRA as they would be just in a brokerage account because you could get the same funds basically. The only difference now is flexibility. So how much do you value the flexibility? Is the flexibility worth 0.7% a year? That's the question you have to ask mm. yourself, right? And so that's kind of what I would do is like, I think about flexibility a lot. And so like the safest thing without, if you don't want to do anything, the safe, absolute like, you know, just do the match at least. I think everyone should do the match no matter what, because that's like basically free money from your employer. And it's hard to beat that for you basically doubling your yeah. contribution. So kind of hard to beat that. So I say everyone should do the match. And if you're unsure or something like take that money and invest it outside. But remember, if, if you're going to take that money and then not invest it outside, then this does not help at all. So you should yeah. max like everyone. If you're going to take that money out and then just start spending it, it does. That's doing you no good. So yeah. maxing is the answer. If you have no self-control, like for sure, like there's <laughs> There's always caveats to all this analysis, right? There's certain things you're not going to get just in a spreadsheet. And that's like, maybe maybe the whole point is to lock that capital up because some people can't help themselves. So I'm saying like, mm -hmm. you have enough discipline to take the money out and then go and invest it in a brokerage account separately. I recommend doing that. If you can't do that, then probably should be maxing. So yeah, gotcha. I'm trying to get you guys invested and trying to get you guys to own income producing assets to grow your wealth over time, right? That's the idea. So then you have more flexibility. You can live the financial life you want, et cetera. Cool, cool. So you know, the, aside from the 401k, the other part of your book that just kind of made me just stop and think for a minute was uh, your part about, hey, maybe having some debt isn't terrible. So for me, I'm somebody, uh, you know, I've, I've actually been writing a lot about this lately. I recently published something on Business Insider about how I had no credit. I, I didn't understand credit. I destroyed my credit, right? And the last, you know, I've been sober for like 10 years and I finally rebuilt my credit, right? And now that I'm getting approved for like credit cards and all these other things, like my brain has just been trained to like pay it off. Don't pay the minimum. You are going to just accrue all this interest. You're going to be paying so much extra, right? But then I'm reading your book and you kind of discuss like, hey, in certain situations, maybe having debt makes sense for that person. So mm. how, how do you kind of see debt and when it is? good, bad? Is it based on interest rates? Like, how does that work from your perspective? I think a lot, this is very context dependent, as you were saying, like it's, mm -hmm. it depends on, you know, what you need in your life at that point. And so yeah. for example, there's this, there's these people called borrower savers. Now what's a borrower saver? That's imagine someone who has a thousand dollars in their uh, checking account and they also have $500 in credit card debt. Now, you know, most personal finance experts are going to say, you look at that, you know, you have a thousand bucks and you, you have this credit card at $500. Let's say you're paying 20% a year as the APR or something you should just pay that off. So you have no credit card debt and you have $500 in cash, right? The issue is what happens if there's like a, some sort of liquidity event where you need to like, you need 700 bucks, mm -hmm. you need cash. You can't, you can't go and put it on your credit card, right? You need to pay, you need to pay cash right now to fix something. You can't put it on your credit card, hypothetically. In that instance, now that person is now in a real bind. Now they have to go ask them mm -hmm. for money, they go do something else and reach out to the network in a way they wouldn't have to if they just kept some of that credit card debt. Even though, yes, that interest is, is high, the payment is low because 20% on 500 bucks is only a hundred bucks a year. And I don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that's nothing, but relative to things like people, you could probably find a way to, to make that hundred dollars and some sort of side gig or something pretty mm -hmm. easy. Right. So the thing I want people to think about, and I generally think credit card debt is bad. It generally is. And so the people say, avoid it. I agree for the most part. There's, a, there's of course, exceptions, but I just brought up one with the borrower savers, but you want to avoid debt most of the times, but there are certain times when debt can be helpful and can be useful. And so I think the people, the, the main takeaway I have though, is I don't want you to think like, oh, I can just put everything on my credit card now. That's not the yeah. takeaway here. The takeaway here is 
for certain people, like debt can actually be a tool that you use to build wealth and help you build wealth, right? And I think the people that are best suited to use debt are people that don't need it, which is a very counterintuitive thing. But like, I can use an extreme example. So like Elon Musk was something he did. And this is what a lot of rich people do. It's not just him. I'm not picking on him or anything. Instead of instead of just like selling his Tesla stock, he will borrow against it and just have mm-hmm. to pay. Like, And then when the interest rates are low, he'll just pay off that interest because his his assets, he believe, are going to appreciate and they're going to go up in value. And if they do keep going up in value, he easily can pay off that payment and the interest. And, you know, as the question is, is, yeah. is Tesla going to appreciate at a higher rate than whatever the, the 2% or whatever year they're charging him to borrow against it, right? And it probably is, right? I mean, because most, mm-hmm. most stocks do. Most stocks appreciate higher than that regardless. So, um that's the thing. And so he's just, he's playing that game there. But the whole point is like, if you don't need debt, then you're probably someone who could benefit from where that's whether you're with the mortgage or maybe you want to get some education or something. There, there are different ways you can do that. But yeah, I would say don't necessarily fear debt as much as you have to like, think about what you're doing before you do it. Mm-hmm. Don't just be frivolous. But yeah, I wouldn't worry so much about debt, especially mortgage debt. They find that like people don't like have any sort of negative feelings towards mortgage debt. For the most part, there is a subset of the population that is that hates debt no matter what and they just want to yeah. be at zero and if you're one of those people there's nothing you can do and you you kind of have to like pay everything off and just never have any mortgage debt or anything so um but yeah the studies show that generally the, the only debt that doesn't really affect people psychologically is mortgage debt so if you're like hey i want to buy this house i'm you know but i'm worried about debt if you're one of those people that absolutely hates debt you're gonna just you're gonna not love it but most people yeah. are not like that so just you kind of have to know yourself once again yeah, yeah, and it makes sense too that you know, uh, you know, like you you can do a little side hustle and make that money back from interest and stuff like that. And yeah, yeah. you know, something something else I I forgot which book I was reading, but uh, it was it was talking about you know, and I'm curious your opinion on this. Like it was saying, pay off all your debt before you even consider investing in the stock market, right? But you know, kind of uh, just in that realm too, like, do you, do you believe that that is the case? You should pay off that debt or, you know, not even just investing in the stock market, but investing in, you know, yourself, your business or whatever it is. Like, Hey, I want to start up an Etsy shop, but I need to buy materials to make these things. Or, you know, like I write, I, you know, I, I freelance, but I also have my own blog and pay for the website and, you know, different programs and things like that. So Mm -hmm. do you think that should be taken care of before investing in the stock market or even in yourself or is it kind of situation dependent as well it's it's once again situation but it depends on the rate yeah if you have like credit card mm. debt and you're paying 20 percent a year on that you know if it's a large amount of debt you're gonna have that's the best return there's nowhere else you're gonna get 20 percent. maybe you could have a business that's growing at 20 percent or even faster there are you know if it's starting to really take off you can be like wow look at our growth so there are ways where you can do that if that business can generate enough extra extra cash for you to pay off that debt more quickly, then it could be worth it to do that. But for a lot of people, that's not easy to build a business that does something like that. Right. So mm. the main thing I would say there is like, yeah, it's always context dependent. You know, if you have like, oh, I have this 3% loan, you're paying a loan on 3% on, that's probably not that you can probably hold on to that and, you know, pay the payment. That's, you know, as long as it's you know, not negative amortizing, it's not the payment, the, the value isn't going up over time, it's going down over time, the actual mm. total amount owed. As long as that's going down over time, like yeah. making the minimum payments fine. Um, and then you can invest the rest. But yeah, if you're paying 8%, 10%, it's really tough to like choose the stock market over that given it's like a guaranteed 10% savings versus yeah. a possibility of 10%, you know? So I think that's the real tough part. I understand people like getting invested in like that idea. And if that helps motivate them, then do it. But you got to you gotta kind of do trade-offs and figure out what's right for you at a given point in time. So. Yeah, yeah, that totally makes sense. And, you know, something something else uh, from your book, um, like even speaking of debt, like uh, 
just from my experience, people I know and everything, like a lot, a lot of people are not making as much money as they wish they were. And I loved your book because you, you said it flat out, like, Hey, people who aren't making much income, it might not make sense for them to save, invest and stuff like that. Right. But, you know, I'm always trying to figure out like, how, how can they do it? How can they take like even five, $10, do something with it. Right. So do you, do you have any recommendations for people who are just struggling to get by at a minimum wage job and obviously investing sooner rather than later? Like my son's 13 years old. He's been flipping Legos on eBay. I'm like, Hey, uh -huh. take some of that profits. Let's put it over here and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And even if it's just a little, do you, do you have any kind of just like suggestions for people who are like, Hey, I don't have enough money to do this, even though it's going to help them in the long run, you know? Yeah. So the thing I would say is you kind of have to raise your income. That's really the, mm. and figure out what, now what that means. I don't know what that means exactly. That can mean getting a side hustle. That can mean getting promoted at your job. I mean, I talk about this in the book a little bit, but you're right. When you don't have sufficient income, like you could put five bucks in there and let's say you get a six X return over 40 years. Like, okay, let's say real return too. So that's like actually adjusting for prices and everything. So you have 30 bucks at the end, like, Oh, great. But like, you know, even if it's a hundred dollars, $600 in retirement, it's not, it's basically nothing. So yeah, my whole point is like, what's, what's going to be more impactful is spending your time. Of course you want to start small and put a little bit of money here, a little bit of money there. Yeah. You can do that, but don't spend a lot of time on it. Don't spend time obsessing Ooh. over what you're putting it into. Cause all that time you're spending, you could be spending developing skills, raising your income, et cetera. That's where you're going to, that's the biggest lever. And I talk about this in chapter one of the book. It's like, depending on where you are, like in your financial journey, depends on which lever is most important. So when you have rel relatively few assets, that your most important lever is your labor, what you can do to actually earn money. That's everything, right? Mm -hmm. Once you're old and retired, and let's say you're 65 years old, and let's say hypothetically, you had a $1 million portfolio, you know, your income is not going to change that much. What you can do, how you invest your money matters a lot because a 10% return on a million bucks is $100,000, right? So yeah. if your portfolio goes up by 10%, it's a hundred grand. That's a lot of money, right? So, you know, thinking about that and where, where's your leverage at? When you have a million dollars, your leverage is on your investments. When you have like a thousand dollars, your leverage is on your income, right? And so you need to focus on where you're getting the most, the best use of your time. And right now, if for someone who's just starting out minimum wage job, you know, uh, making ends meet, they're going to, they should find ways to raise income. And it's not going to be easy to do, but you have to do it. I mean, it might take you a few years even to like build up the skills to do something, but find some way there's, there are ways to do it. And I, I'm not, and you know, there's different ways of doing it. I'm not saying they're all great, but you got to do something, you know, and figure, yeah. figure that thing out. So. Yeah, that's, that's definitely something I, I had to learn. I, you know, I'm, I'm just luckily a nerd. I love learning and like <laughs> testing mm -hmm. out new things and I've increased my personal value. Like this new gig that I landed, you know, it's, it's paying me more than any previous job. And a lot of it's just based on the experience I've acquired over the years, just trying to learn new things. And now I'm seeing this extra money. I'm like, oh, what do I do with this extra money? Oh, toss it in, invest. Yep you know, whatever it is. So that's something that I, I'm really trying to, you know, talk to people about. It's something I'm pounding into my son's head and, you know, hey, learn how to do stuff, be more valuable to people, have some extra income and all that. But um, something else that I've run into that I think a lot of people think about is uh, buying a house. And uh, Nick, I do not understand how the hell anybody buys a house. Okay, mm -hmm. so, so like I'm sitting here and looking and, uh, even if I look at like the average like salary, right, or annual income of people, right, 
what is it like? Probably like fifty. Is it like fifty, sixty thousand yeah. something in there? I think it's right? the median, the median household income. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's household, so it could be include other people. But yeah. yes, let's just say that. Yeah. Right. So yeah, like my girlfriend, she's just about to finish grad school for social work. She's gonna land a job, so we'll have two incomes. But even still, so we lived here in Las Vegas. And last mm -hmm. year, like we were debating on like getting a house. And you know, they want you to pull like 20% down. That seems like purely insane. Like on mm -hmm. like hundreds of thousands of dollars, mm -hmm. like I, like it seems impossible. So maybe you can help mm -hmm. me understand if I'm being too pessimistic about it because I'm like, okay, let's say I get that 20%. Now I'm looking at property taxes. I'm looking at fixing any damn thing that happens in this house. Like, I'm just like, do I just need to get that idea out of my head? Is buying a house just a waste of time? Like I, I don't get it. So what are your mm -hmm. thoughts? It's not necessarily a waste of time, but I think the issue is, you know, house prices. I mean, for most of history, I actually have a, a chart of this in the book. House prices didn't appreciate by much. They appreciate by 0.6% a year after inflation. So you know, whatever inflation is, just add a little bit on top of that. So they've definitely gone up over time, but it's been very slow. It's only recently, especially the first housing bubble we had in, in 2000, or whatever, 2008 or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then... And now, especially recent last few years, housing is, has shot up again in a way it's unprecedented. So um, that's what's making this so difficult because house prices across the U U.S. are being bid up by there's different. There's obviously people invest. There's like companies investing in them and buying them. Used mm -hmm. to just be people. And now everyone's got their hands in them. They're like, we need it. We have all this money and there's not that many assets out there. There's not enough stuff to invest in. So they're buying everything they can. So that includes yeah. things like, you know, because yields are so low, people are like, we can get more money by owning housing than we could by owning, you know, maybe US bonds or something. So if we buy enough of these houses, it's like a safe investment. That's the idea. So what's happening is all this money's flooding in and it's shooting prices up. And that's, and now that's taking a hit on the American consumer. So it does feel like it's out of reach and it is, it is more out of reach than it's been. And that's not, that's not a lie. But over time, I think, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. I can't predict what's going to happen, mm -hmm. but I, I wonder if prices will come down or maybe they'll stay like this for a while and incomes will go up such that they will be, it will now be more affordable to get a house. Um, but we just have to kind of wait and see. And I just don't know. And it, it really depends like which segment of the population you're talking about. There's a lot of older yeah. people that have like the boomers have a lot of money. And as they start dying and all that money starts coming down to Gen X and millennials and stuff, you're going to see this like kind of big transfer of wealth that, that everyone's talking about, you know, Oh, the, the boomers have more than any generations ever had in terms of percentages. And that's true. But as they, you know, pass all that wealth has to go somewhere. It's not just going to, no, it's not going to be given up to nobody. It's going to go to the next generations and then mm -hmm. that's going to be passed on. So it's not a great uh, spot to be in right now, but you know, that's just the world we're in. And that's, you know, that's our, that's the struggle of our generation is housing right now. And I know that. And like, I, you know, I can't afford a place here in New York city and I feel like I'm doing decently well for myself. So yeah. I know that too. I'm obviously, I, you know, if I move to a different area, I could, but like, even in my, you know, local environments, like it's very expensive. It's super expensive. I said like it's a million bucks just to get like an apartment out here, which is yeah. kind of crazy. So, yeah. yeah. So uh, I, was, I was listening to you on another, another podcast and you guys were discussing like, you know, this idea that millennials are not, anywhere near where the boomers were with like how much mm -hmm. they're making and all these other mm -hmm. things. And you were saying that based on the data, that's not a hundred percent true. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious if you could break that down because, um, I, I look at things like, you know, uh, you know, college used to cost X amount and, you know, uh, then housing and all these other things. Right. But I'm not familiar with all the inflation and like relative to that time period, mm -hmm. but do like, where is that? 
wrong or is it partially correct? Like, because I know a lot of millennials who are saying like, hey, I'm struggling. Like my parents had a house, they had cars, they had all these things and extra money, right? But I don't. Mm -hmm. So where do you see that issue being? Is it that avocado toast that everybody says that millennials are buying and wasting all their money on or what is it? It's definitely avocado toast. There's some truth to it. To say that it's not true at all would be a lie. But if you look at like average, I say there's the issue is if you look at like average like wealth accumulation within this generation and you compare it to like where millennials are, where boomers were and Gen X was at the same age. And we see we're all kind of on this similar trajectory. And it's kind of, I think I do bring this up either chapter two, or chapter three in the book. I kind of show like we're kind of on the similar trajectory. Now I understand that's an average. Now you're saying Ooh. there's some millennials like Mark Zuckerberg who owns basically 2% of all millennial yeah. wealth, which is crazy. So like I know the average is skewed, but even if you look at like median statistics, there's like, there's a lot of data showing it's not, it's definitely, it's definitely worse than other generations have had it, but it's not as dire as I, they make it seem like no millennials can afford anything, but that's just not true. And like, I know lots of millennials where that's not true. And the issue is just like, there's all these, it's a great story, a great headline to say all millennials are poor and don't have assets, but mm. that's just not true. Then there is going to be like, as, as the boomers, as I say, as they age and, and, and die out, they're going to, there's going to be a massive transfer of assets. It's going to be the biggest transfer of assets in human history, right? Or at least in us history, I apologize. Um, we're going to see that happen. And so the, the answer isn't, okay, let's just wait for that. That's not the real great answer there, but there needs to be some sort of policy adjustments, especially for maybe student loans or for other types of things to help people who are millennials. And whether that means like better job training programs, whether mm. that means, you know, I don't, I don't know the exact solutions here. And that's, that's why it's problematic. Um, Cause yeah, because boomers have more wealth, they have more like um, negotiating power and like real estate and so many other things. Cause the, cause the obviously relative wealth does matter. So even though the absolute numbers were kind of on, were kind of on track as a, as an entire generation, there is a subset of millennials who are who are doing much worse off. And that's mostly because of uh, loan debt, mostly student loan debt, if I have to pinpoint it, right? It's yeah. not necessarily medical debt or anything else. It's student loan debt that is really hitting us hard. And so like, yeah, you're like, housing is a lot higher than it was. And um, so is uh, education. But those are like, two of the big things. There's a lot of things that are a lot cheaper though. And so I'm not here to like say, yeah. oh, oh, I can get a cheaper TV and that offsets the housing. No, it doesn't. But I'm saying there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. things out there that are a lot cheaper, a lot easier than it was back then. So it's a, there's trade-offs and obviously like housing is more important. It's more like a universal human good than like a TV or something. Right. But um, so I understand that struggle and that definitely matters. Um, but yeah, I think it's one, I just think it's a little it's a little, I think what we see in the headlines is a little more extreme than the reality, but there is some directional truth to it. Like I do think millennials have had it harder than boomers did, like all else equal, right? I, yeah. I think that's completely true. I'm not debating that. I don't think it's like this dire struggle of like millennials are on the streets eating avocado toast to survive or something. Like I just don't think yeah. that's true either. I think we need to kind of have more balanced discussion. That's that's really what a lot of this stuff is, is just having balance in all of these topics yeah. and really thinking, okay, what are the real issues? What can we solve? If it's a debt crisis, student loan debt crisis, what can we do to help these people? is there maybe a tax credit we can give and so if you've already paid off loans you have a tax credit too so it's more fair to everybody because i hear the, the first thing i hear when i say let's forgive student loan debt i never had student loans i was very fortunate i had a scholarship but let's say they say okay let's forgive student loans the people who paid off already say well what do i get like i already oh i was responsible and so now i have to get nothing and they get something I was like, yeah. okay well why don't we give a tax credit if you've already paid off loans and you can prove you paid off a, a government loan or some sort of you know you can say, hey, look, I have a tax credit now of this amount and you can write it off on your future taxes. So yeah. guess what? And everyone gets that. So I get that too. So even if I want to go back to school, I have a tax credit if, if I take a loan out, right? So that's another way of looking at it. Something like that 
might be able to solve it because then it's equal and everyone's gonna be like, okay, well, if I didn't use it, that's my fault, but at least I have it. I have the option to use it. And that's what I think is more fair. And it's going to help the people who are actually struggling right now. So that's, that's why that's the type of policies I want to see, but you know, that those aren't popular to talk about. So, yeah. Yeah. Something I'm always trying to encourage my audience to do, whether it's books, articles or whatever, is try to try to find like the balanced view on all these topics. So there's always something that we're missing and everything. And specifically with student loan debt, like I said, like my girlfriend, she's in grad school for social work. She's going to have like 80 something K in student loan debt. Right. But at the same time, when we're talking about like student loan forgiveness, I, I came across someone the other day who had like a master's in like something silly like folklore. Right. And I'm like, what are you going to do with that degree? So I can see people being angry or upset and never wanting to pass, you know, just getting rid of this because it seems like a personal decision. So you're kind of talking about maybe something where like, hey, well, what do these people get who didn't maybe what, you know, some people think is making a dumb decision. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just saying like, if we're, if we're going to, cause I want to, I want to basically shut those people up so they don't complain when there's yeah. like, Oh, Hey, we're giving all this free money to these people. Why is that fair? And, and that's a fair point. It's not a dumb argument. I'm saying, here's how we, here's how we say, okay, you already paid off your debt. You're going to get the same tax credit. So you can use that next year against your income. So you yeah. say, look, I paid off these loans, you know, and maybe someone else paid off more and they get more, whatever that's you have. And we have some limit, maybe we say up to like, I don't know, 50 K or something or 30 K whatever, whatever number we give, we say, you can write up up to 30 K off your income next year because you paid off student loans and everyone's going to be able to do that as long as you can prove it was like educational credit or something. Yeah. Right. So I'm just trying to find something that allow that at least helps people now. And it also makes feel like there's some sort of fairness here. And that's, I think what thinks what's important because people care about fairness and they're going to say like, Oh, this is a massive transfer to this person or that person there. We already kind of do transfers as it is, but the only way to kind of make it more fair is to kind of, you know, yeah, yeah do that. Yeah. So with just a little bit more of your time, Nick, let's, let's talk about crypto, right? So mm-hmm. I'm curious your thoughts, uh, you know, about investing or how much of your portfolio, because as I mentioned, I know a lot of people, my, it's like, when I started investing, I started asking like, Hey, do you invest? Do you invest? Do you save? Like, what are you doing? Just trying to learn from my peer group. And I know quite a few people who don't even touch the stock market and they're like, I invest, but it's in crypto. And they're just hearing about these random coins, like not even like Bitcoin or anything, Mm -hmm. you know, cause Mm -hmm. there's all these, uh, you know, just the FOMO and hearing the stories about the people who got rich and all that. So as somebody who kind of does this professionally what are your overall thoughts on crypto as an investment yeah so my so my general thesis with with regards to income producing assets they should be like the bulk of your your investable wealth so i say 85 to 90 percent the other 10 percent can be in things that don't produce incomes uh specifically now we're going to get into there's something called staking we can get into that in a second within crypto but let's Mm. let's let's say staking doesn't exist for just one second right so things like gold, things like wine investing, art, crypto, those all fund or, fall under non-income producing assets because there's no income that comes from them. You just own the coin and or you own the art and you hope someone else pays for it at a higher price in the future, right? That's the whole premise of that type of stuff, right? And so I think the issue is there's no fundamentals there to like say, why is this worth something? Now, there's, there are, of course, exceptions. You'd be like, look at Ethereum. There's all this stuff being done on Ethereum. So just having access to the network is worth something. Okay, that's fair. There's some, but it's not the same as like an earning statement where I can say like, look at there, these are there. There's this weight of earnings. This thing is paying us. Like I physically can, you can't debate the, the thing that's paying you. Ethereum is not necessarily paying you anything to hold yeah. it. There are cases where you can, as I said, staking, where you can kind of give your Ethereum to someone and then you get paid some sort of yield on that, right? And there are ways to do that. I think the issue with staking is there's still like a lot of unknown risks. And I think a lot of those we've actually seen kind of recently in 2022 in the case of like 
people are like, look, I'm making 20% a year. They yeah. staked all this crypto. And then the the underlying that coin went down by 50% in the course of a couple months. And it's like, wow, you made 20% a year, but then you just lost 50%. <laughs> yeah. So what do you, you know, what did you really get? You just, you lost 30 only. Oh, wow. Great. That's a great, that's a great investment. Right. So I think because they're so volatile, the staking stuff is tougher as an income producing asset. Like it definitely can work. And so I think the only exception to this is staking something like a stable coin, like um, something that's backed, you know, that's guaranteed backed, you know, something like, I don't want to recommend coins, but the only one I know that's like really backed is USDC, which is the Coinbase yeah. one because it's backed. It has to be backed with a company behind it. It's not just like, you know, supposedly there's reserves and all this. I don't want to get into all the stable coins out there, but yeah. Yeah, so there are ways you can earn income off them by staking. And in that case, I guess it would be income producing. You could own some of that. But for the most part, for those not doing the staking stuff and you're just holding the underlying coins, it's always going to be paid by someone else. It's always going to be based on what someone else pays for it. And that, that's true with stocks too. But at least there's some, as I said, there's some fundamentals. There. There's earnings. There's something. It's like having a, what I like to say is imagine a suitcase with $100,000 in it and someone offering you you know, 50 grand for it. You would say no, like, cause there's still this fundamental thing. It's worth a hundred thousand or, you know, it's worth something. I know I have, I can point to this real thing. And so there should always be some like fundamental level, even when people are super irrational that it shouldn't, you know, fall below. But with, with crypto that, that doesn't exist with gold, that doesn't exist with art that doesn't exist, right? It's always based Ooh. on what other people value it. And so that's the only real problem I have with putting a bulk of your wealth in that. Now, of course, the people that have done that in the past have done very well, but that's not true forever. Even right now, as we're speaking, I don't know what Bitcoin's at, probably below a little bit below 40, but yeah, it's so. down 33% from where it was. And that's not even on real terms. If you add the 8% inflation, now you're talking it's down 40 plus percent in real dollars. I mean, how many assets do you know have a have a one-year return of you know negative 40% real? Like it's very rare. Even US stocks very rarely have a return like that. It's only in a major crash. But with crypto, this is a regular occurrence. And obviously you could go back up and go way above that and go to 100,000 a coin and then I'm gonna yeah. look stupid. But like <laughs> there's, you know, it's just, it's unpredictable. No one really knows where it's going. Of course, people think it's the future and that's fine. Then I say own a little bit of it, own a couple percentage points. And that's what I do. I do own crypto for, sorry, I didn't, specify that sooner but i do own yeah. some bitcoin and some ethereum i own it i plan to keep owning it and if it gets lower in my portfolio i will add more rebalance back to my small allocation and kind of wait and see that's mm -hmm. kind of my and if it gets really really big which has happened I, I bought bitcoin at eight went up to 52 i sold some of it down because i was rebalancing i'm trying to keep within my tolerance band so i'm trying to keep it a, a small percentage of my portfolio so i don't worry about it too much yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's because I, I live here in Vegas, but I just see a lot of people getting caught up in the the hype of, you know, when, uh, you know, crypto, crypto like usually makes the news in two instances when it goes up a ton or when it goes down a mm -hmm. lot too. So, so just last question real quick for someone out there who doesn't want to be gambling and everything like that, if they had one type of uh, financial thing that they could research or whatever it is, like, should they go look into like index investing? Should they look at people who are analyzing, like, you know, like doing fundamental analysis or technical analysis and all these other things? What's something someone could do to kind of dip their, dip their toe in and educate themselves aside from your amazing book and your amazing blog? I, I appreciate the book. I appreciate the book blog. I sent, I'll send you something in the mail, send you 20 bucks in the mail. Um, no, I would say look into index investing. I would say that's the thing. Low cost indexing. You're saying what's low cost? Most funds now you can get for under 0.1%. Um, it's called the expense ratio. Find it under 0.1%, almost any fund. You can get a, probably a world stock index fund definitely for under 0.2% you know, per year. So it's called 20 basis points. You know, uh, 
yeah, so something like that, it's going to be really cheap. Um, I would say look into that, understand what it does, understand, you know, how it works and just like, and then just keep buying. I mean, that's really, that's really the thing. And like, obviously like there's gonna be times when you're underwater, but if you do this for a long enough period, you know, and the world, it doesn't go into, you know, a dark ages again. And I think you're going to be fine. So that's yeah. my, that's my take. Beautiful. I love it, man. And I, I absolutely love the book. So for everybody who is interested in finding you and keeping up with you, uh, a couple of things, where can they find you? And is the book everywhere? I know some people have like a separate international release and all that, but yeah, where can they find you? Where can they find the book? Yeah. So you can find me on Twitter. My handles at just the at symbol and then dollars and data. That's all lowercase dollars and data. Uh, it's similar to my blog of dollars and data.com. And yeah, the books on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, but yeah, on Amazon, you're going to find paperback, hardback, you know, the audible Kindle, all that type of stuff's going to be up there for, uh, for purchase. So beautiful. Awesome. Nick. Well, thanks so much for your time. And yeah, maybe we'll do this again sometime. All right. Thank you, Chris. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Nick. I hope you learned a little bit. I hope it got your wheels turning. I hope that you want to go out, grab his book and learn some more about this. But but yeah, kind of like what I was talking about him with, uh, you know, all this stuff that came up with GameStop and all that, like, like me personally, you know, uh, I, I often write or, you know, I'm vocal about issues with our current system with capitalism. And a lot of us, it's easy for us to think, oh my God, the system's rigged. I can't do anything. Why am I even going to bother? And, you know, the way, the way I see it, you know, as I mentioned is, is like, you know, it's only hurting myself. It's only hurting myself to just, you know, get mad at all this and then just not do something that can help me and my family, you know, uh, succeed financially. You know what I mean? Like I can participate in the current system while also, you know, pushing for changes that align with my beliefs and values. If that's different for you, totally cool. But if you do kind of get what I'm saying, if that kind of resonates with you, if you kind of don't trust what's going on, hey, totally cool. But again, we need to do what we got to do to make sure that we can you know, survive in this current situation. So I, I really love Nick's book. And again, he dives into very important topics such as, you know, wealth inequality and all these other things. And as we talked about, you know, like millennials versus boomers and all this other stuff. So check out his book. It covers the whole wide range of topics. And yeah, you'll definitely pick up some tips that will help you out in the future. So head down to the description, make sure you're following Nick over on social media. Most importantly, grab a copy of his brand new book, Just Keep Buying. And before I let you go, again, if you're new, make sure you're following the podcast so you don't miss any upcoming episodes with amazing authors. Again, like I said, I have a couple more guests coming on who, uh, yeah, we talk about similar topics like, you know, investing and saving, all these other things to make us a little bit smarter financially. Like one of my upcoming guests is actually Daniel Crosby. He specializes in behavioral investing, which is my jam because it combines psychology with how we invest, save money, spend money, and all that kind of stuff. So anyways, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Next, make sure you're following me on social media at The Rewired Soul, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok. Got a YouTube channel that I need to update with all these new episodes. Make sure you're following me. Uh, a couple ways that you can help support the podcast and what I'm doing. First, if you like this episode, if you thought Nick and I talked about some really interesting stuff, do me a favor, share it, all right? Email it to your friends and family members. Share it on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Head over to Reddit. Share this episode. 
And the second thing you could do is head over to Apple Podcasts, leave a rating and leave a review. This stuff really helps with the algorithms and spreading the world, the word, not the world, spreading the word around the world <laughs> and all that jazz. All right. But some other ways you can help support the podcast, you can head over to the rewiredsoul.com, uh, grab uh, a copy of one of the books that I've written. You can also become a paid subscriber over on Substack, five bucks a month or $50 for the year, you get all of these episodes a day early. That's linked down below as well. And the other thing that's linked down below is an affiliate link to BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, mental health is a huge part of my life. It's something that's helped me in my recovery from addiction, but also just dealing with life on a day-to-day -day basis and my anxieties around money, work, all that kind of stuff. So BetterHelp is a service that I have personally used so if you're interested, uh, it's it's affordable, it's online, so it's super convenient, and you work with a licensed therapist. So check out that affiliate link for BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right, but anyways, another huge thanks to Nick for taking the time to come on the podcast. Make sure you head out and grab a copy of his book. And yeah, I believe that is the last episode for this week, but I, I should have two episodes for you next week. All right, so until then, have an amazing rest of your day, a great weekend, and yeah, I will see you in the next one.